The Better Samaritan podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Aiton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revived Thoughts. How many talents has God given you, and how have you improved them? How many blessed opportunities for good has he given you, and you pass them by? Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was preached by Anthony Burgess in London in the year 1656. Joel, this is one of those tough reminder of the end of your life sermons. It it, the what when I read it, it reminded me of Jonathan Edwards's "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God" or Charles Spurgeon's "Compel Them to Come In." This is just one of those sermons that's gonna make you think about Judgment Day, and that's a tough subject. It's not a fun subject, but I do think that those sermons sometimes are the sermons we need to hear to reevaluate and check ourselves in the direction we're going in. Are we living in a way that when that day of judgment is here, we won't regret what we're doing right now? Yeah, Anthony. Burgess. It's probably not a name you're familiar with. I know it wasn't a name I was familiar with before doing research for this episode. He lived during the 1600s, and many people, the consensus is that he was probably born in the year 1600. There's no birth certificate. There's no record of that. If you look him up on Wikipedia, you'll see that he died in 1664, but there's no birth date. And again, most people are pretty sure that he was born in the year 1600. Like his undocumented birth date, most of his early life is also largely a mystery. We don't have a ton of details. We can see that his father was a schoolmaster, and so education was very important in his family and his childhood. He was educated growing up, and he ends up going to St. John's College, which is in the Cambridge area. Even though we don't know the exact details, um, you know, I don't know what he did for fun when he was 10, I, we can understand what England was going through that during that time, and just as the things that happened to you affect you, we can get an idea of how that affected Burgess. Uh, this era of history in England is a turbulent one, and I feel like every single era of history that we go through is a turbulent, crazy time, but maybe that's just life, I'm not sure. We're leading up to the English Civil War, and Anthony Burgess will be a big part of that. Uh, you can see how this time in history kind of shapes things up, though. You're starting to see the, the embers of it. In the year 1600, there's this attempted coup. And then in 1605, there's the gunpowder plot. If you've heard of Guy Fox, he's famous from that time. And in 1606, you see this group of people head over to America kind of for the first time. Then in 1607, you see what's called the Midland Revolt, where people are trying to take their property back. Then there's this group of Protestants that leave an area called Scrooge. Ruby, they are captured. A year later, they make it out, make it out of the captured, and they end up arriving in uh, the Dutchlands. And ten years later, these are the Pilgrims, and they head to America. The, there were also many witch trials. If you look up Wikipedia 1610s, you're just going to get witch trial, witch trial, witch trial, right one after another. You can see how that shapes them, especially because some of these guys living in England will go on to be the Puritans that will deal with the Salem witch trials. You know, 60 years later, their children will. Uh, there's this typhus outbreak that happens in this time. Parliament will open. It gets suspended. It gets canceled. This is a crazy childhood. Just from a national perspective, England looks like she's really teetering on the brink in just a lot of ways. And so you 
can see how this emphasis on just all these different things happening would have an effect on you growing up. Again, just imagine some of the things you've lived through and just imagine that those things were instead multiple attempted coups and revolts. And throughout this time, the Puritans are trying to find their place in England. And this is all while the Church of England and the Catholics are struggling to find their place in charge to see who's going to win that battle, who's going to be in charge of the Catholic Church or the Church of England. Anthony Burgess becomes a, a rector during this time. It's a cleric that leads people and helps with administrative tasks. And he does this job for 30 years. He was pretty influential in his ideas of justification and others that he pushed were pretty big theological ideas during that era. When the English Civil War broke out around the year 1642, he ran to the Coventry, England, a hideout there with about 30 other well-known famous Puritan preachers and professors. You know, the English Civil War is a hard time for just for stars for us to kind of describe uh, but for men like Anthony Burgess, this was a, a basically a time of persecution. From 1638 to 1651, there's actually multiple English civil wars. They're describing this era as difficult, but about 250,000 British people, soldiers mostly, will die from these various civil wars. At the time, that's 5% of the population. So imagine one in 20 people that you know die from these inner wars, and that gives you an idea of what they're dealing with. You also have in the middle of this the Cromwell conquest of Ireland, which will cause a bunch of problems, and a bunch of Irish people will die during that. Uh, this is a really just an intense time for them to go through. Imagine our civil war, but that in England, and you're getting this idea. The royal army, those who supported King Charles I and II, they did not get paid very well. And they were basically told to get their money by pillaging the towns and villages that they would come across. When they did that, they kind of specifically targeted the Puritans as they saw them the real reason for the conflict. So famous Puritans like Anthony Burgess had to flee away and hide in a place like Coventry. This was the big stronghold, the, the main fortress of the Parliament Army, the people who were fighting for the Puritan side of things. Coventry was just this fortress with thick walls. For years, different armies would attack it, but they could not take it. And the king's army wanted to take it down. One of the reasons was because all their prisoners of war were being held there, uh, but they never were able to fully take it. I just imagine this guy, he's this Puritan preacher. He's, he's writing books about justification, but here he is living in this town with high walls, all these prisoners of war. The country's just unraveling before his eyes. That must have just been a weird experience. I mean, just a strange thing to live through. When they eventually come to peace, Coventry, you know, everything falls apart. The whole thing works out. The king takes over again. He actually has the walls of Coventry taken down one at a time. The bricks completely unlaid. It's never allowed to build its walls back again because it was just too difficult to take. They didn't want it to deal with it ever again. Yeah, Troy ran through that conflict in like three minutes, but it is it is a really fascinating conflict, one that we could easily do a whole show on. Maybe we will eventually, but for now we're going to move on because we got a lot more of Anthony Burgess's life to uh, to cover here. This episode is brought to you by the Better Samaritan podcast with hosts Ken Annan and Jamie Aiden. The whole idea is we're looking at how do we do good better. The Good Samaritan helped out along the road, but then in Dr. Martin Luther King's sermon, he talked about how we want to also figure out why did the person get beat up along the road? So we want to make the whole road safer. So that's the that's where we're coming from on this podcast. Far too often, we've seen Good Samaritans whose hearts were in the right place 
but because they weren't also helping with their smarts, they actually ended up causing harm. So we really want to bring both our, our faith and look for biblical understanding, as well as what can research and science teach us to be able to help us do this work better. Most often, it's these small acts of kindness that make the biggest differences in the lives of our neighbors. And so on the podcast, we explore those small ways to get involved, those tangible, practical, concrete ways of what it means to love our neighbors. You can find Better Samaritan anywhere you get podcasts. So by the time this whole conflict is over, Anthony Burgess is ejected from the Church of England, and he's not allowed to preach. The king had made a ruling that only those ordained in the Church of England could preach and run a church, and Burgess refused, and that got him the label of a nonconformist. That's what they would call him. That's what you were decreed as a, as a nonconformist. He lost his position in the year 1662, and because of that, he spent his final years not able to teach and do the work of his rector job anymore. The non-conformists ended up being over 2,000 clergy that were kicked out of the church for not getting their ordination from the Church of England, for refusing to come under that. And we've had others on this show from that era, men like John Bunyan and most recently Thomas Watson. They had to do their preaching and teaching in secret in the woods, meeting in abandoned barns and old buildings because they were outlaws. They weren't allowed to be preaching and teaching. Around 1689, a compromise came out. The nonconformists, those who did not have ordination from the Church of England to teach, were allowed to preach once again if they pledged an oath of loyalty to the King of England or to Parliament. Sometimes they would say, oh, you got to you know, pledge it to England itself. Sometimes it's the King, sometimes Parliament, the country. It, whatever it was, once you get the oath of loyalty in... It was their compromise to make sure that we didn't go through another English Civil War. That was the big deal. It's like, hey, you guys, we can't do this again. Now, this kind of seems confusing. And, and maybe you're looking at this and you're going, it's not a big deal. I don't understand these terms. What do I need to know here? But for Anthony Burgess, being a nonconformist meant you couldn't keep teaching at university. You couldn't be a clergyman. You weren't going to hold political office. You're not going to be a part of parliament. Your life is very much restricted because you refused to come under the Church of England. So this was a big deal to him and the people that followed him, the people that were trying to live through those times. Again, John Bunyan's in jail for just trying to hold open air preaching during the same era. These terms of loyalty really opened a lot of doors for these people, but these things would happen after Anthony Burgess. He died before he would see that compromise. Uh, in his day, he was going to be kicked out of office. Um, he would have to preach and teach and do his work in secret. And in this sermon, he talks about the day of judgment. Everything in his mind is like leading towards that moment when it's you and it's God and your life is laid bare. What actions you take on earth, what sacrifices you make now, they will be rewarded in that moment. And likewise, those compromises, those failures, those ways you turn your back on God, that's going to be remembered too. And I think this understanding of the day of judgment, how everything that he went through in life is going to pale in comparison in that moment when he sees God, that's what motivates him through all this. That's what makes him go, you know, I'll give it all up. I don't care about these earthly things. My eyes are set on the day of judgment and the reward that comes after. And I'm not going to worry about what I have to suffer now because I know much I know how much more important it's going to be once I get to the end of it all. (laughs) 
What do Athens and Jerusalem have to do with each other? What does the University of the Gentiles and the Christian Church have in common? Tertullian asked this question while speaking of God's direction concerning this passage of Paul being at Athens. And yet here we see him like a little David going into battle in the name of the Lord. With just a few stones from the brook or some arguments from the scripture, he was up against the great Goliaths of the world. And in this historical narration, we may see Paul performing a double service for God as both a debater and as an orator. First, as a debater with the many groups of philosophers then ruling in Athens, especially the Epicureans and the Stoics. Even though both of these were opposites to each other, they both agreed in opposing Paul and therefore called him for his doctrine a trifling babbler, a word often used by critics. But Paul does not only encounter philosophers, for he is brought to Areopagus, where he makes a sincere and admirable oration from which our text is a part. In this place, we may consider the general public are the people of Athens. These are the bright luminaries of the world of learning. As Tertullian called it, a city of the tongue, their ways were said to be practiced by inquiring after new things. This is a disease many times found in the Christian church when many become weary of solid and known doctrines. They desire that which is unheard and unknown and love to be found in the unsearchable parts of divinity. The place here is Areopagus or Mars Hill, so-called either because the god Mars was here accused for his impiety or because it was a severe court of justice against all unjust, violent, and murderous actions. This Areopagite court is famous. They excelled so much in authority that kings laid down their crowns when they came to sit with these judges. They were of such integrity that they kept the court and gave judgment in the middle of the night. They kept court in the dark so that they might not see the people who spoke and be affected by appearances. They only listened to what was said. Here it was that the pleader must not use any excuses nor make any appeals to emotions. The people of Athens gave as much reverence to the sentences and decrees handed down there as they did to their sacred oracles. It was here Paul was placed. However, Paul is undaunted and being an earthly angel, as Chrysostom called him, he did not fear the power of man. In his speech, we should consider the crime he charges them with, which is superstition. Some educated men think the word superstition is used in an indifferent or neutral sense, as the word heresy is used sometimes. Others say Paul commends them and therefore uses the comparative term more to mean religious, for they were excessively devout in their religion. One case of their religious fervor was dealing with Anaxagoras, whom they judged worthy of death because he held the sun, which they worshipped as God, to be but a white fiery stone. But this interpretation of superstition is not probable because afterwards he calls it an ignorant worship. Therefore, the word is not here used in an indifferent sense and even less a commendable one. The instance by which he proves their superstition is an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. The apostle here instructs them about the true God, who he is, and the very true manner of worship. After which 
he comes to the exhortation part of his oration, which is grounded upon God's dispensation to those times of ignorance he winked at. Here there may be much dispute about the salvation of heathens, because it is said God winked at it, and so this is how it is generally interpreted. But the Septuagint uses the word to mean despise and be angry at, as in Deuteronomy 3.26 or Psalm 78. This is the sense it seems to be used here. Those times of ignorance and idolatry, God was angry with them, punishing them with temporary and spiritual judgments. But now, the grace of the gospel and the love of God has appeared in commanding everyone to repent. And my text is the reason for that repentance. Because he has appointed a day, and in these words let us consider the author, God has appointed a day. A God that is just, omniscient, omnipotent, and he has appointed a day. He has settled it so that there is no repealing of it. There cannot be any, any reversing of it. Although ungodly men would give all they have to have it canceled. A day. There's a lot of discussion about the length of time. Some say this day is a thousand years and that God will be judging over the world. It is certain that there will be no days as we know them now. But seeing that scripture has not determined the time, who can possibly tell us how long it will be? The reason why such a day is appointed was to judge. Right now, God seems to take no notice of the sins and ungodliness of wicked men. For now, they eat, drink, and rejoice in their iniquities. But there is a day when God will judge the world. The world, no one is exempted. It comes for the great as well as the small, rich as well as poor, and the mighty as well as the weak, the godly as well as the wicked. One with the judgment of discussion and praise, the other with the judgment of discussion and condemnation. In righteousness, righteousness is here but put partly for truth and partly for justice. He hates sin and will punish it. And there is the judge by whom. Now Christ is here called a man and a judge. Here those blasphemous Socinians deny the essential deity of Christ and make him only of God. And here he is said to be appointed a judge and that this judiciary power is given to him. But you must know that many things are said to be given to Christ as mediator, which does not diminish his deity, but necessarily flows from it. For to be made a judge of the whole world, who can do this but he who is God as well as man? For he must be omniscient and omnipotent to be this judge. And how the human nature of Christ comes to know all the secret things of man's heart is disputed between us and the Lutherans, but I don't bother with it. Only know this, that Christ is not an inferior judge, but supreme and chief, being God as well as man. The Doctrine That God has appointed a day to judge all mankind by Christ. This truth is an article of the faith, and it has such a powerful influence on our lives that it is good to think through the truth of it and show our hearts the terror of it. For both corrupt minds and profane hearts have rejected this main fundamental point, 
as the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. And so they also say in their hearts, there is no day of judgment. And as that king of France strictly forbade even the mention of death in his hearing, he hated the thought of it. Oh, so many feel this about the name of this day. The devil cannot hurry men into hell as he did the swine into the sea before the thoughts of this day are wholly forgotten. Therefore, people before Christ's time and since have been doctrinal and practical opposers of it. Doctrinal like the Sadducees, who denied the resurrection and immortality of the soul, needed also to deny the day of judgment. And as Josephus observes, the Sadducees, though they were not as many as the Pharisees, and not as reputable in character, yet they were the most powerful. They were the greatest in wealth and honor, so that the denial of a resurrection and the day of judgment worked well for their interests. After Christ's time, this article was so plainly affirmed in the New Testament that no words can speak of it more clearly, and yet there is a large catalog given by learned men of blasphemous and damnable heretics who do deny it. And the Socinians believe eternal torment to be the annihilation of the whole man, and they, in effect, also revoke God's truth. And as for practical opposers of it, the Apostle Peter does deal with some even in his days that were but scoffers and deriders at that truth, which should have struck them into fear and trembling, as it says in Second Peter 3, 3 and 4. There will be in the last days scoffers saying, Where is the promise of his coming? And there will be others who live as if it is not coming by saying, Let us eat and drink and tomorrow will be as this day. They do not realize it. But they deny this day, or put it far off from them. Yet for this article, we have in Scripture both the truth and the words. For if there had been any avoiding it, the corrupt heart of man would have thought out plausible excuses so as to deny it. This truth is clearly asserted both in the Old and the New Testament, so that the scribe of the kingdom of heaven may bring out of his treasure old and new. And I think it is more remarkable to have it in the Old Testament, where the truths of heaven and hell are more obscurely delivered. That this doctrine was believed of old, and even right after the fall, appears by what Jude related in his epistle, verse 14. Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to render vengeance. And whether this was a real or verbal prophecy is debated. If verbal, where is that prophecy now? If it is lost, can any part of the canonical scripture be lost? And how did Jude come to know that this was in Enoch's prophecy? They are debates which I will not attempt here today. But here we have a plain prophecy, and that almost from the beginning, that the Lord will come with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment. That it is a doctrine of old antiquity, Solomon, the wisest of men, gives two testimonies to this truth. In Ecclesiastes 11.9 and 12.14, God will bring every work into judgment. And this is brought as a restraint to impiety and a spur to all godliness. The last text I will build on is that famous text, Daniel 7, 9, 10, and 13 through 26. From here, says Mr. Mead, the Jews took the name of the day of judgment. And Christ used the expression as a thing that was well known. Even the title Kingdom of Heaven was a Jewish phrase. It is true some learned and pious men compared this with Revelation 20, Do not improve it, 
not only for a day of judgment, but that it will continue a thousand years. Where the martyrs as some, or all the godly as others, will be raised, and reign in glory in the earth a thousand years. After which time the wicked will also rise to be judged, and this is called the first resurrection. But as for the doctrine of the Trinity and Christ's incarnation, we must distinguish between fundamental truths and problematic. So in this article, the fundamental is that there will be a day of judgment. The problematic are those which learned and pious men may debate and differ in, without the breach of charity. Although for this opinion of a thousand years, I more admire it for the wonderful things asserted by it than approve of it. I come to the New Testament, and here it would be useless to accumulate the many places when only two or three texts will be mentioned, so that our hearts may be sensibly awed by it, as if, like Jerome, we could always hear that vo noise in our ears, Arise, you dead, and come to judgment, as it says in Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. We have there a lively description of the day of judgment, which is to divide between goats and sheep, the one sentenced to eternal punishment, the other received into eternal life. Let faith realize this text upon your soul and set yourself at God's bar. Think as God called to Adam, Adam, where are you? And he was filled with so much fear that he hid himself. Imagine, God is calling out, you sinner, such an unjust, profane wretch, where are you? To what mountains and hills will you call to be covered from the sight of this judge? A second text is Second Peter 3, 7-9. through 9. There is what comes just before this day, that all the world will be on fire like a Sodom and Gomorrah, and the heavens and the earth will pass away like a noise. As just before a house falls, the beams begin to crackle, and the pillar makes a loud noise, so it will be at the end of the world. This will be such a terrible change that the apostle describes it as seeing all these things will be dissolved. How is it possible to believe in such a day as this and choose to live in ungodliness? You profane and unrighteous man, either you are an atheist and do not believe any such thing, and if so, what are you doing in the church of God? Or if you believe this day, you are a fool and madman that chooses destruction on that day. Does a man have faith, reason, or conscience if his thoughts and purposes are not on this one day? As in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, here is Christ's coming, also described with a shout, the voice of the archangel and a trumpet of God. We will not debate the clarity of these things, for this is here to show that Christ will come with all the majesty, terror, and glory that can possibly be imagined. And that this is certainly so, consider Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So that you may no more question such a day than you will die. Besides scripture, let us consider rational demonstrations of it. First, it must be so from the truth of God. God, you see, has foretold in so many places of such a day that although it may seem impossible and incredible to men, yet God's word will stand when heaven and earth pass away. Now consider this, whatever the scripture has foretold 
we see it come to pass in its time. Christ did come in the flesh according to the prophecies which went before. The world was drowned as Noah prophesied while they were eating and drinking. But will all things come to pass like this? Set scripture, the word of God, against your carnal reasonings and say, everything will be will prove a lie, but God's word. You will find your lusts, sins, and the devil to be a liar to you. Only God's word will be faithful. Secondly, the righteousness of God and his punishing justice require it. For it is called the day of God's righteous judgment. And in the text, he will judge the world in righteousness. The Socinians, as you heard, who deny any essential justice in God, that he might not be inclined to punish sin, take away the satisfaction of Christ on the cross. So they also weaken the necessity of such a day of judgment, where the holy majesty of God will be avenged upon all the ungodly. Should sin ever go unpunished, this would seem as if God was not a God that hates iniquity, but the justice of God calls for such a day. Third, the goodness and mercy of God also requires such a day. For if the godly had only hope in this life, they were more foolish and miserable than any, as it says in 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen. Only those who say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we will die, were wise in that case. A man who would keep a good conscience in vain and foolishly abstain from the excessive joys of the world, and especially the martyrs, would be the greatest fools of all. Let them put off the crown of glory, if there is no day of the Lord. For then they were imprisoned in vain and died in vain. But it is called a day of redemption. And the godly are commanded to lift up their heads with joy. For then their summer comes, and they are to look for and hurry to it. For here on earth they are sighing, groaning, and they are conflicted with proud, earthly, vain hearts. But this day will put a period to all, and there will be no sin or sorrow any more. Fourth, the providence of God, as it disposes things in this life, plainly declares a day of judgment. For here in this world, Solomon observes, all things fall alike to all, to him who fears God and him who does not. The prosperity of the wicked and the adversity of the godly is a perplexing subject to the wisest of the godly heathens. Seneca and Plutarch spent many words on it. Yes, this providence of God was such a riddle to David and Jeremiah that without much prayer and recourse to God, they were not able to answer it. Now to this objection, which has staggered so many, there is no such satisfying and complete answer as that there is a day of judgment when God will set everything in its proper place. When all the world will discern between him who is righteous and him that is not, Therefore, silence all such murmurings and conflicts with expectation of that day. For you should not judge too soon before the last act is over. And as in the word of God, a man would be blasphemous if he should make a period out of a comma or a colon. So in this place, you are not a God that loves iniquity. If he should stop at, you are not a God and go no farther. This would be blasphemy. 
so it would be highly derogatory to the justice, wisdom, and honor of God if you should conclude what is just and what is unjust completely and finally by thoughts from this world. Seeing the day of consummation of all things has not yet come shows us that justice has yet to be fully resolved. Lastly, that there is such a day appears inherently in the principles of our consciences. For why is it that a man dying, whose conscience has not been numbed in that hour, that suddenly terror and agonies overcome him? And why then, and it may have never been before, should horror and trouble take hold of him? O wretched soul, where are you now going? What will become of you? I cannot live on, but I dare not die. Why should such anguish of spirit fall upon a man going out of this world? if it was not for some implanted sense about a future judgment. For we might think of a man who was so vile, who should be troubled about his sins, but he fears no laws, no judge to condemn him, no neighbors to shame him, and yet for all this he trembles and quakes in his soul without a clue what to do when death comes. To bring this coal yet nearer to your hearts, to inflame you, I will lay down some propositions about the day of judgment. For starters, it will be the last day of God's great work in this world. God will then ease all the governments in church and state, as is now upon the earth, so that being the last day of God's power, majesty, glory, in reference to all mankind, we must think that that day will be answerable to the greatness of the judge. Here he is to come in the clouds as so many bright thrones of glory with an innumerable company of angels, so that God, although he has in many specific and public judgments showed his glorious power, yet never like what will be on that day. It is the last day, and all days empty into it. All our words, works, and thoughts have an influence on that day. So that in this sense we may say, every thought is eternal, every word is eternal, every action is eternal. These actions don't die, but all live till the day of judgment. What holy care and diligence should this have on us in all things? It is said of Apelles that being demanded why he was so deliberate and curious in drawing his pictures, he answered that he painted for eternity, not just for the present age only. For many successive ages were to judge his work, and so we all do. For at the day of judgment it will be all revived. Your sins do not die, your good works do not die. All these will then be mentioned as if done today. So that this is the last day, where all of humanity's works will be involved. After this, there is no more day of grace. No more manna will fall. No angel will descend into the pool. The world, as the current way of doing things, will be over. Second, as it is the last day, so it is a terrible and dreadful day. The very name, a day of judgment, doomsday, is enough to strike terror into us. In Romans 2, it is called the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
The signs leading up to it are terrible too. In Matthew 24, its nature is terrible. All the secret and evil ways of mankind will be judged, and the consequences of this appear in that sentence, Depart, you cursed. And it must be terrible, because the judge will then set himself to appear, so that all the terror and dread God can put forth will then be manifested. And the scripture represents it by all those expressions which can make it formidable. And certainly, if the report of it is so dreadful, what will the day itself be? Then every wicked man will say, as the Queen of Sheba concerning Solomon, that what she had heard was nothing compared to what she did see. Here also the wicked are brought in, gnashing their teeth and crying to mountains and to hills to cover them. This will be the most terrible, not only because all external objects will be horrible and disgusting sights, for the world is on fire. And then with the wicked roaring and yelling, God will then fill the hearts of men with terror and trembling. Their spirits will be prepared for it. What is the reason that now the thought of this day doesn't terrify you? Only because your heart is stone. This is why God doesn't make your heart sensible and apprehensive. But on that day, the spirits of the just will be perfected and raised up to love God and to delight in him more than ever. And so the spirits of wicked men will be more open to receive the horror. They will be made more aware of terror than they are now. Though now under these truths, you are like Job's Leviathan. You laugh at the spear and we seem but as babblers telling you the poet's fables of the underworld's lake and the hellish furies to come. Yet when this day comes, madness and horror will fill your heart. Above is horror, for if you look, you will see Christ the judge. Around you is terror as the devil's ready to take you to an eternal prison. Below is horror, hell opening its mouth to swallow you up in those flames. And within you is the greatest horror. There is the gnawing worm, which never dies. Think of your sin. Look upon your lusts as you would then on that day. Would I do as I am about to do if I were at God's tribunal, and if I were at court on that dreadful day? Third, it is a wonderful day, a day where there are nothing but miracles upon miracles and wonders upon wonders. The scripture tells us such a day will be, and we must not be curious about how. How can it be? What a wonder it is it that all the persons who ever were in the world, though their bodies have decayed or were eaten by other creatures, and some may even have been eaten by some cannibals, yet all those bodies rise again. And the same individuals appear before God? This is so great a miracle that the philosophers mocked it. Another wonder is that all the millions and infinite millions of persons should be gathered into one place. This is wonderful that all the persons who ever lived in all ages, infants not accepted, should be convened together. A third wonder is Christ's audible voice will speak in the ears of all the world and in such a physical way will pronounce his sentence of condemnation. Some indeed have thought that there will be no audible pronunciation by Christ, but that it will only be mental in every man's conscience. But we must not depart from the letter of Scripture 
unless necessity compels it. As for the debate over the trumpet, whether it is a material one, like the fire in hell itself is a place in material, these are here without certainty. Lastly, what a wonder is this, that upon the pronunciation of departing to hell, everyone will obey. The conscience of everyone will yield to it, and they cannot withstand the sentence of God. You would think they would rather be torn in pieces than depart to fire, but they must do it. It is uncertain when this day will be, although it is certain that it will be. That this day and hour cannot be known by any man is known from what our Savior speaks. He says, no man nor angels nor the Son of Man knows it. Therefore, the opinion of some is very absurd, who have concluded the time of this day may be known. In the apostles' days, some pretended revelations from the Spirit about the day, and in these later days, some deluded persons have in some places run up and down crying out, Repent, repent, because the day of judgment is here. And some vain and ridiculous astrologers, who used to foretell other men's conditions, and yet never know what will befall themselves. But they have thoughts that Noah's flood and Christ's birth might have been foretold by the stars. And some have blasphemously said that Christ brought such miracles because he was born under such a constellation. So these do conclude that by the stars we may know the time of the day of judgment. But the scripture compares it to a thief coming in the night, as in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, and to a snare for the bird. It will come upon all unexpected and unlooked for. It is true many divines, though they say the time cannot exactly be determined, yet think it is not far off, and they look for mighty changes taking place in the world. So that they think it is not improbable that some now living may not die till these things be. But these are only conjectures. Let us content ourselves with this, that it is certain it will come, and the time is uncertain. So that we should not have oil to provide for when the bridegroom comes, and that we should not cry out to him, Leave me alone longer, I am not yet ready for that day. The doctrines now understood, let us proceed to the application. For if any article in religion has that blessing upon it, increase and multiply, I know none more useful and profitable than this. The first use will be of exhortation in general to all. God commands everyone to repent, for he has appointed a day where he will judge the world, as it says in Acts 17.31. I will not acknowledge those who think it is too legalistic and not becoming a gospel ministry to preach on this dreadful subject. As if these arguments did not belong to an evangelical spirit, for Christ was then a legalistic preacher, and Paul too, who so often spoke on this subject. Indeed, we may see the goodness and love of God in this, that he does threaten us with hell and with the day of judgment. For why does he foretell us about it, but to have you prepare for it? He once sent a flaming sword in anger to keep Adam out of paradise, but now he lifts up this fiery sword in mercy to keep you out of hell. And he threatens you with the day of judgment, that it may be a day of redemption for you. 
How inexcusable then are you who believe in such a day and yet does not repent before it is too late? What pleasure or sweetness will you then find in your lusts when you say with Jonathan, I have tasted a little honey and I must die. I have had a little pleasure in sin and now I must forever be damned. Nebuchadnezzar built a golden image with this terrible command that whosoever would not fall down and worship it should be cast into the fiery furnace. Now this was so terrible to everyone that except for three or four, there were none that resisted it. The fear of a fiery furnace made them do anything. Won't then the fear of those eternal flames, the fear of this day where God will reveal all wrath without any mercy to the wicked man, won't this then turn you out of your sinful ways? Won't this make you wail in bitterness against your former lusts? Do not be so enslaved to the devil as to say, Give me my pleasures, my profits today, though tomorrow I will be in the grave and I will be in hell. This was a wicked saying in Chrysostom's time, which he zealously taught against. Yet isn't it still the voice of every profane man? Give me that which is sweet or pleasant, though it choke me. But more because of this day of judgment, take heed in these areas. Firstly, beware of living in secret sins, secret uncleanness, secret lying, bribing, or unjust ways. For this will be the eminent work of the day of judgment, to bring all secret things to light. Those sins which for the secretness the magistrate cannot judge at the day of judgment will then be most eminently judged by God. That will be the day when those sins, which no neighbor, no wife, no friend in the world knows, will be discovered and judged. Whatever is said or done in secret will be preached upon the housetop, as it says in Luke 12, 3. Adulteresses and adulterers God will judge, as it says in Hebrews 13, 4. Why will God judge them? Because such sins are secretly committed that the magistrate cannot punish them. Do not flatter yourself with secretness, for you know there will be a day of judgment, and live so uprightly and sincerely, that if you had Gyges' ring, which they believed would make a man invisible, yet you would say like Joseph, How can I do this and sin against God? The more craft, subtlety, and secrecy there is in a sin, the greater is your wickedness. Sometimes even in this life, God judges secret sins to make them confess them and bring them to light. How much more on that great day? Secondly, because of this day of judgment, take heed of accounting any sins a little, as if they were unimportant. For at this great day, even those will be judged alongside the greatest. As it says in Matthew twelve thirty six, we must give an account of every idle word at the day of judgment. If an idle word, a man will have to give an account. How much more of that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Do not then charge men as too strict or precise when they attempt to abstain from idle thoughts and idle words, that they dare not give themselves that license which others take, for these are judged as well as great sins. An idle word will damn you as well as sinful actions, if it is not repented of. For what are the apostate angels sentenced to eternal torments and reserved in those chains of darkness? Was it for any more than proud thoughts? And just the beginning of them. 
There cannot be any little sin, no more than a little bit of God, or a little hell, or a little damnation. If a man should have no other sin but an idle word or an idle thought, yet at the day of judgment this would eternally cast him, for it needs the blood of Christ to wash it away. But woe and a thousand times woe to us because of this day. For what are all our feastings? What are all our meals but filled with so many idle words? What are all our meetings, our companyings together, but so many idle words? Next, because of this judgment, take heed of sins of omission. Do not bless yourselves with a private righteousness. Lord, I bless you that I am no drunkard, no extortioner, nor like this tax collector. It is not a negative, but a positive holiness which this day will be after. So you may read of that solemn process at the day of judgment, as in Matthew twenty-five, forty-two, and 43. I was in prison and you did not visit me. This is all for omission of actions. It's not for sins committed, like you robbed me, defrauded me, you persecuted me, you put me into prison, but the omission of what they should have done. This was their condemnation. Now how dreadful will the day of judgment be in this respect to most men? How little do they consider their lack of good works as sins? You comfort yourself because you are not one of the gross outward sinners of the world, but what confusion will fall upon you when God will inquire about your omissions? You do not curse or swear, but you also do not pray. You do not call upon God privately or in your family time. You do not stand up against those who are maliciously after those who fear God. You are but a mere negative Christian. You don't rebuke sin. You don't punish sin. You are not zealous for the holy ways of God. Oh, consider this lack of action will damn you just as well as sinful actions will damn them. And in this, God will make a special inquiry of you. How many talents has God given you? And how have you improved them? How many blessed opportunities for good has he given you and you passed them by? Fourthly, because there is a day of judgment, then you must watch out for hypocrisy. For that day will especially bring out the Jehus and the Judases into the light. Though they may be for a season do the will of God, yet because it was not for God's sake, and not with pure and righteous motives, therefore the great work of that day will unmask men like this and make them naked. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, This made Paul walk with such integrity, not seeking himself in the ministry of the word, because we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must be made thoroughly clear and transparent. For now it is not known who is a hypocrite and who is sincere, who is truly for God and who in pretense only. But on that day, the counsels and thoughts of the heart will be disclosed. That is remarkable, as in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Paul did not care about other men's judgments, for he did not judge himself, because the day of judgment will find out more evil, more hypocrisy, more sinfulness than we ever thought of. In Isaiah thirty-three fourteen, the hypocrites are surprised with fear. Who among us will dwell with devouring fire? 
a man that is carried by false motives in religion, has hell heated seven times hotter for him. And so we have the expression, it is a heavy damnation to have a portion with the hypocrites, as it says in Matthew twenty four fifty one. It was the speech of that famous speaker for the heathens, Symmachus, pleading for the liberty of the heathenish idolatry when he urged them to become a Christian in a scoffing manner. Make me the bishop of Rome, and then I will become a Christian. Aren't there many who were like this man was pretending to be? If you help me to profit and make it worth my while, then I will become a Christian. But you should pray for a religion that reaches the inward parts. Fifthly, in the end, let the thoughts of this day discipline your appetite to the great things of this world. Things like wealth, honors, places of trust and charge. For as these things increase, so your account will be greater on that day. Oh, that I had never been a judge, one will say. Oh, that I had never been a minister, you'll hear another say. We will then be as desperate to take off those burdens as we are currently to put them on. Let this thought satisfy you. If I have less, my account will be less on that great day. There's this terrifying moment in my mind in the sermon where, you know, above you is God's judgment and around you, he says, are the screams of those perishing and they're and is judging you and, and, and below and the people who will be judging you and then below you is hell. This is not the nice kind of sermon, you know, people genuinely kind of want to listen to. It's not the sermon that makes you feel good, but it's a reminder that this is a real experience someday for a lot of people. If, you know, you aren't saved, you're hearing the sermon, this is one where it makes you ask that question, where am I headed when this is all over? And if you are, it reminds you that, man, I got to live for holiness and live for God and all that I do, not compromising. Our lives do matter. The choices we make are important and we want to do everything we can to help people we know avoid that fate because someday there will be a day of judgment this will be the scene that people live through and we need to make sure we are clarified in our mission while we're here on earth Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Special thanks to David Seep for narrating today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. We hope you enjoyed it and encouraged you in your faith. Uh, we want to ask you to share it with a friend or let others know about it. If you're one of our new listeners, we know that we have new listeners. We see a lot of you coming in all the time, especially lately. And we really want to recommend you go back and check out our catalog. We have over 60 of these sermons. All of them have backstories and they have these great sermons attached. And it was an idea Joel and I had uh, literally right now, Joel had it, that we should tell you a sermon that we yeah. really think would be a good one to go back and check out. So I'm going to start with that and I'm going to recommend uh, if you have not heard George Matheson's The Patience of Job. It's not one of the sermons one. that was one of the most popular. It didn't blow up on the charts when we put it out there. But I got to tell you, I really struggled with loving the book of Job until I listened to that sermon. It really put the whole thing in perspective. I really think it's a great sermon to listen to. And I highly recommend that one. 
my favorite uh, is probably, and I know I've, I've recommended it before, but George Mueller, go back. It's like, it was one of the first episodes, so you got to scroll all the way down to the bottom of the feed, but you'll <laughs> see George Mueller, uh, either the first or second. That's it's a great one. It's the first one. one. Real is faith. it really? Yep. That is a great episode. Um, you'll the, the show's been on for over a year now, so the, the show's kind of changed over time. So I'm sure if, if we were listening back, I'm sure it would sound kind of funny with our personalities. We probably kind of changed our how we do the show, but yeah. uh, but that's a great sermon. And also both of our Bonhoeffer ones that we have out are top notch. I Absolutely. love Bonhoeffer. You gotta listen to them. I really recommend the Bonhoeffer sermons. The we recommend you go back and check out these sermons. You may think, well why not just jump in where I am right now or just catch the most recent ones. I think that's a great thing to do. We wanna have you do that. But there's a lot of great content and some of these sermons, some of these ideas kind of build on each other and we don't want you to feel like you're missing out or missing a piece of the puzzle. So highly recommend if you could go back and check out some of those early episodes. This is Troy and Joel and this is Revive Thoughts. The Better Samaritan Podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Aiton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better.